1970. You've heard the nominees, and the winner is Crystal Ball. From the city that he loved so much, New York. That's my father, Frank McMahon. This is a very beautiful tribute to Brendan Behan. I'm Deirdre McMahon. To the Abbey Theatre, which... He's accepting a Tony Award for his stage adaptation of Brendan Behan's Borstal Boy in New York. It was the first Tony Award for an Irish play. Brendan Behan never got to enjoy this moment. He died six years earlier, at the age of 41. Because of my father's connection, I became interested in Brendan Behan. He'd had a short but brilliant career. His fame brought him an almost rock star status. And that's often overshadowed his talent. He was an incredibly diverse writer of plays, poetry, short stories, radio drama, and, of course, probably his best-known work, Borstal Boy. John Howard the Quaker invented solitary confinement. Or so they say, anyway. Well, all I can say is that he must have had terrible little to do. That, of course, is Neil Tobin playing the part of Behan on stage. Born in Dublin in 1923 into a Republican family who gave Brendan a love of literature, he began writing at an early age. As a teenager, he joined the IRA and his activities saw him arrested at 16 in Liverpool and sentenced to Borstal in England. By the age of 23, he had also served time as a Republican prisoner in Ireland. In prison, he continued to write, in English and Irish. Outside, he also worked as a house painter. But there is a time in Brendan Behan's life that we know very little about. In the late 40s and early 50s, he spent long periods in Paris, where he developed his craft and worked with an important group of writers in post-war Europe. And if it wasn't for one small but important magazine in Paris, one of his finest works could have been lost forever. There's very little on record about Brendan's time in Paris. But I found this tape of him speaking to the French writer Sylvain Lautranger in 1961. It has never been broadcast before. I never had any trouble with the police in France until they became famous and rich. Well, not rich, I mean famous. In 1948, Brendan Behan's decision to go to Paris made perfect sense. For a writer, it was the place to be. Brendan went to Paris where you're not accepted as a writer unless you produce stuff. That's Brendan Behan's biographer, Eulick O'Connor. Paris gives him the space to concentrate on writing. UCD professor John Brannigan. But also took him seriously, and that mattered a great deal. Good to live in France, in Paris, because you meet other writers, and you're in a country where a young writer needs a small time in France, because first of all, he doesn't know whether he's a writer at all or not. I mean, coming home and announcing to your friends that you're a writer, must be rather like changing your name. Brendan found ways to get to France from early on. I had been to France on little trips before. I'd been to Dieppe and to Rouen on horse boats. I used to go with the sailors. They knew me, used to give me a lift over. There weren't many direct routes in those days, and travel to Paris generally involved crossing England. Brendan's past Republican activities meant he was barred from entering Great Britain. But that didn't stop him. Special Branch have reported that Behan passed through New Haven on his way to France on the 19th of August. It is not known how he got into England. 
He was travelling to France on Aero Passport number C57531 in the name Francis Behan and left before his real identity was established. That's from a Home Office file in the British National Archives. For the next few years, Brendan would spend time in Paris, working on his craft as a writer. The Paris that Behan arrived into was a city still recovering from the Second World War and Nazi occupation. During the war, Paris became completely run down. It began to crumble. Writer John Baxter has lived in Paris for many years. After the war, life here was really miserable. That included the available accommodation. There was no heating. Uh, the kitchen was in the toilet, or the toilet was in the kitchen, depending on how you look at it. Uh, there, there were roaches everywhere, bed bugs. It wasn't at all, you know, hanging out in interesting places. It was a sort of constant fight just to, to find something to eat, some, something to drink, somewhere warm. But Paris was coming back to life after the war, once again becoming a centre for intellectual thought and artistic expression. Artists, jazz musicians, writers came together and enjoyed a sense of freedom and liberation. I, I had been walking around all the night because there was nowhere to go and I called into a couple of cafes and I went down and uh, if you go along windowsills in Paris, you're always sure to find something. People have a habit of leaving odd pieces of food up on the place, so I found some old stuff, I don't know what it was. And I went across the uh, Place de la Concorde, where they were making a film at the Cleopatra's Needle, you know, the, the obelisk. So I went and uh, I stood around with the crowd there and I went, some, I went across... And finally, I wound up walking across the Shandu Mars at about six o'clock in the morning. Brendan Bean got to know Paris and settled down to writing. He also worked as a house painter to get by. He had left behind a very conservative Ireland, just as other writers had done before him, like James Joyce and Samuel Beckett. The cultural centre of Paris was on the left bank of the River Seine, the area of Saint-Germain-de-Prés. Saint-Germain-de-Prés became the, the, the magnet for most of the post-war foreign intellectuals and students. The advantage was that there were a lot of small cafes and hotels where you could live quite cheaply. Sordidly, it has to be said, but cheaply. I know Bian used to hang out at a cafe over on Rue Monsieur Le Prince, which is very close to, to where we are now, uh, which was, in fact, an Arab cafe. There were a number of North Africans uh, who gathered around here. So it was a very metropolitan, very uh, heterogeneous, bohemian culture here. To hang out in a cafe would, would have been the logical place for Bian to go. I'm in Paris to retrace Bian's steps. At the moment, we are really in between many streets. We're in between Rue Dauphine. That's literary tour guide Marion Jolie. Rue Mazarine and Rue de Bussy. Every street that you've named, we can associate with Bian. So we're really in the heart of where he was. When you think when he came here first, uh, he was living on the street, the, the Rue Dauphine. All these places were at this intersection of Bian territory here, aren't we? And this is... 
the street that he uses, uh, where he wrote his poem to James Joyce, the gratitude to James Joyce. Behan wrote his poems in Paris in Irish. Buichus le Joyce, or Gratitude to Joyce, was written around here in 1949, and it's set in one of those Arab taverns. We're going to walk all along Rue Saint-André-des-Arts, maybe to guess where the, the Arab tavern that uh, Bihan was talking about could be, because it doesn't exist anymore. On show Rue Saint-André-des-Arts, Here in the Rue Saint-André-des-Arts, plastered in an Arab tavern, I explain you to an eager Frenchman, XGIs and a drunken Russian. Of all you wrote, I explain each part, drinking Perno in France because of your art. As a writer, we're proud of you, and thanks for the Calvados we gained through you. If I were you, and you were me, coming from Les Halles, roaring with a load of cognac, belly full on the tipple, a verse or two in my honour you'd scribble. Brendan Behan spoke about his debt to James Joyce. I think it was very much influenced by, fundamentally, as well as my writing has been influenced by Joyce. He writes about his indebtedness to Joyce uh, in the city of Paris. Professor John Brannigan has written extensively on Brendan Behan. Because Joyce has been such a phenomenal sort of figure uh, internationally, here he is as an Irish writer able to have drinks bought for him uh, because of uh, the success of Joyce. And he thinks about the sort of reversibility of that, you know, if, and he says, you know, if I, were, if I were you and you were me, you know, perhaps you'd be buying a drink in my honour. Uh, so he's sort of joking about that sort of reputation as well. There was a new kind of writing and thinking taking hold in post-war Paris, a philosophy of individual freedom and choice, people defining their own meaning in life, rejecting previously held beliefs about society and religion. It was called existentialism. The centres of this philosophy were two cafes, Café de Flore and Les Deux Magots. Well, you would probably see Sartre and de Beauvoir. Sartre lived just around the corner. That's John Baxter. Three French writers, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, were at the centre of this philosophy. Of course, Simone de Beauvoir would would usually work uh, in one of the two cafes. And so it would be quite usual for people to come there knowing that they could meet uh, Sartre, de Beauvoir, Camus and, and other people like that. Brendan Behan would become friends with one of those writers in particular, Albert Camus. I didn't agree with everything that he said, but uh, he made a great statement when he got the Nobel Prize, and he said that, uh, he said, um, the duty of a writer is not to those who are in power, but to those who are subject to them. Uh, I think France has got very good reason to be proud of her, Albert Camus was, he and Sartre, you know, they took up all the, all the space. There were big figures in a small pond, you know. <laughs> this is Jacqueline Elion. She lived in Paris right through this time, and her husband, Sinbad Vale, 
would become crucial to Brandon Behan's career. All this was all centred in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, where all the publishers were. They had lots of friends. They all sat in cafes and everybody knew everybody and hailed everybody. And you saw, you sat there for 15 minutes, you saw everybody go by. It was such a small world, you understand? Brendan Behan also hung out at the Café de Flore and Les Dumagots. He called them the twin cathedrals of existentialism. He even wrote a satirical poem about the many questions that arose in the world of this philosophy. L'existentialisme, Makala Saint-Germain-de-Prés, Aïr Fara, Taik Soul Fala, Ferigan of Olive, Watchman on the wall patrolling your empty building. How is the hunt going? The graveyard doing? Is our voyage to hell? Must be. Is your mind well? What went before us, tell? Don't know. I was not alive. I am not. Yet, is our fate stinking? Too lazy to answer that one. Good. There's not a bit of sense or pain, still less truth in what I say, or in the opposite way. During this time, Behan was clearly enjoying being a writer in Paris. There's a great respect for writers there. I remember the old concierge. It was in a Breton bar in the Rue Saint-André des the Calvrage. Uh, Le Maison Breton. I used to go to this uh, Breton uh, cafe a lot because they were, they were very nice uh, people. A woman come in and said, said about me, she said, who is he? What does he do? Oh, I said, uh, je suis un peintre bâtiment. Peintre bâtiment is a house painter. And the old concierge, whom I thought hated my guts, he'd never spoken to me before, said, c'est un écrivain anglais aussi. Écrivain is a writer. There was a respect for letters, in uh, Dublin, they'd shout after you in the streets. Paris gave him the um, discipline and the effectiveness necessary to be a writer. That's Brendan Behan's biographer, Eulick O'Connor. It was like um, if you were an athlete, if you fooled around in Ireland in the 40s, you, you didn't get very far. But if you went to an American university where they judged you entirely on results, not what you might do or what you could do, then you had to work hard in order to prove yourself. Brendan was the same in Paris. He had to work in order to prove himself. His writing during this period became more experimental and he needed to find an outlet for it. That's when Jacqueline Elion and her husband, Sinbad Vale, came into Bean's life. Sinbad was really a pioneer. Sinbad Vale was the son of Peggy Guggenheim, a famous art collector. His father was a writer and artist, so he was born into the world of art and literature. I think Sinbad was literary by inclination. He had read everything. He was very, very cultured, Sinbad. Sinbad had lived in France, and after serving in the war, he returned there with an idea. He wanted to publish French and English young writers who had not been published before, which was not quite the case for Brandon. But then he did make exceptions. Behan had already been published in Ireland, but Sinbad liked his writing. He was very impressed by Brendan, and his writing was wonderful. It was so vivid and, you know, strong. But publishing wasn't easy in the post-war years in Paris. France was in a terrible state, you know, after the Germans left. The, the stores were bare, everything was rationed. There was no paper, so if you wanted to get p- paper, you either had to buy it on, on the black market, that was very costly, 
So you had to get it officially. Then you, it was doled out to each uh, newspaper or review, you know, in, in small quantities. And it was terrible stuff. Materially, it was difficult. Despite these challenges, Sinbad pushed on with his idea and Point's literary magazine was launched in February 1949. Well, I do remember we had a little drinking party and all that, you know. We did what we could in those days. It was so difficult to find anything. So we had a little sort of make-believe cocktail party, you know. <laughs> when the first edition of Point's hit the newsstands, it provided a lifeline for young writers. It was a good idea because uh, during the whole of the German occupation, anything in English was banned because of the war. Huh? So the French were rather starved for English literature. So when Sinbad decided to do points with French and English authors, uh, he was an immediate success. Manuscripts came pouring in from everywhere. Two years after first coming to Paris, 1950 was proving a good year for Brendan Behan. He was travelling back and forth to Dublin, he had made contact with Sinbad Vale and would soon be published in both cities. In Ireland, he published the poem Uignus, or Loneliness, in both Irish and English. Uignus. Blas mere adova, tarais bawsti ar var an tleva, idas dun frizun, fedal furna trenak, kagargaira bert lanan dun eneran. Loneliness, the tang of blackberries wet with rain on the hilltop. In the silence of the prison, the clear whistle of the train. The happy whisperings of lovers to the lonely one. He's restlessly experimental uh, in the form. UCD professor John Brannigan. He's constantly trying different forms, uh, the ballad form, the imagist forms of poetry. He's experimenting with different ideas as well. The tightly crafted short story, A Woman of No Standing, shows how Bean was developing as a writer in Paris and dealing with subjects that were taboo in 1950s Ireland with great humanity. In this case, the breakdown of a marriage. But I thought, says I to Rhea, that she'd be like... like... That she'd be dolled up to the nines. Paint and powder and a fur coat, maybe. Fur coat, how are you? said Rhea scornfully. And she out scrubbing halls for me dear departed this last four years, since he took bad. She passed quite near us, and she going out the door, her head down, and a pale, hunted look in her eyes. Although he had previously written about his prison experiences... Paris was where Behan began to develop what would eventually become Borstal Boy, the story my father Frank would adapt for the stage, and the one that would win the Tony Award in 1970. Borstal Boy, I started in Paris, the Hotel Louisiane, which is the corner of the Rue de Boussy. And the, the proprietor, the patron of the hotel, was a great soccer man. He was very much interested in association football, what you call football, yeah. soccer. He was very sympathetic to my work, which he couldn't read, of course. But uh, I wrote it then all over the place. The principal difficulty in writing a book is getting some place to write it if you haven't got any money. Mm -hmm. well, I didn't have any job, I had no place to 
go and I had to I lost the bloody manuscript of it lots of times. It was so weirdly just looking for a place to sleep. I forgot the goddamn thing. 1950 was also the year that Sinbad Vale published an important short story by Behan in Points magazine. After the Wake is not Behan's best-known uh, short story. Uh, I mean, that's probably The Confirmation Suit, which was anthologised by Gus Martin for intercert students in Exploring English. But alongside A Woman of No Standing, it's one of Behan's best pieces of prose fiction. I sat on the bed, undressing myself by the faint flickering of the candles from the front room. I fancied her face looking up from the open coffin on the linened bed, cotton wool protruding from her nostrils, her mouth half closed over two bared teeth. As I slipped down beside him, I thought, how sensible of the Americans who, having imported wakes from us, invented morticians themselves. After the Wake, I think, is quite different from anything else that Behan published. It's a carefully crafted narrative of homoerotic seduction. The story explores homosexual love between men as a kind of open secret, uh, but it goes almost unnoticed, even amongst those who would most vehemently object to it. So the narrator is kind of surrounded by priests and an old woman, and even the, the young man's mother uh, doesn't detect uh, anything that's going on in this. Yet the story also explores that subject, I think, with tenderness, you know, as a love which deserves reverence and respect. It seems Paris had given Behan the freedom to express his own sexuality in his writing. The publication of After the Wake introduced him to an international audience and earned Behan some money. But more importantly, it saved one of his finest short stories from being lost forever. Sinbad had an extraordinary instinct for finding people with talent. He could sense it. Sometimes this talent was just only one flash and that was it. But it was always genuine. He, he had a good sense of that. I have not been able to find a copy of the original points edition in Ireland. For that, I had to come to Paris. This is the issue of points, which has the um, uh, piece in it. Here we are, after the wake. John uh, Baxter is lucky enough to have one. Yeah, this is this is it. You don't see too many copies of this around, I must say. Do you know I've been searching for this really? particular issue? I have not been able to find a copy. There are not, a, not many around. They did a very not. small number, probably only about 500. That is extraordinary. <laughs> and do you know the significance of this is that we haven't found any other manuscript predating this. Really? So Sinbad Vale, in publishing this in points, preserved this story for uh -huh. us. It's very important that Behan published this story also in a Paris-based magazine and edited by Sinbad Vale, who, as Peggy Guggenheim's son, had a direct connection for Behan with uh, that great generation of modernist artists and writers. That was an important context, I think, for Behan. Magazines like Points, these were where a lot of the really interesting experimental work uh, appeared because you could put stuff in a magazine and sell a magazine where you couldn't sell a book. Uh, it was a one way of, of writers to get a little money from, from their day-to-day -day pieces while they were working on the magnum opus. 
Sinbad Vale was very fond of the Irish writer and would publish more of his work. Sinbad kept talking to me about him, you see. This is Jacqueline Elion. He'd seen him today, he'd told him this, and they'd discussed that and so on. I mean, the French were rather fascinated by him, of course, because of his personal history. He had already had a reputation, and everybody admired him so much for having been a, an Irish rebel, you know, all that. Uh, and there was a much sympathy, of course, in, in all these, among all these people for Ireland, you know, the story, I mean... Well, you know, I found in an, uh, some papers recently, this was uh, a notebook of Brendan Behan's. A notebook? Yes, and that was, that's just the, the, the back of it. And I just was wondering, is there anything there that you Wait a minute, I get, I get my glasses oh. on. Four Rue François-Guibert, that's our address. And that's our telephone, Yes. But we had a, a little house with one story, a little courtyard, a gate and a garage for the car. That was it. It was very neat. Brendan was always welcome at the Vale home. When Brendan came to the, our little house, he really filled it up. He was, so, he was big and boisterous, you know. And <laughs> I mean, he was, he was a big man and also his, his talk was important. I mean, he filled the space, you see in no time. And he was entertaining, yes. And of course, he and Sibad drank a lot together, and drink uh, helps. <laughs> oh, gosh, we all drank too much in those days. No, he was always uh, welcome and, uh, yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> we liked him, Sibad liked him a lot, and I liked him too. James Baldwin was a writer from New York who would become a major figure in literature, writing particularly on the black experience in America. James Baldwin, oh, he came to the house quite often, but he, he always came around just to see us. I mean, he was a friend. He was lots of fun. He had a very good sense of humour and he was amusing, yes. James Baldwin. Baldwin came to Paris the same year as Behan and also enjoyed the freedoms the city offered. I went to France... In 1948, when I was quite young, I went there with $40, no French, no one-way ticket. I, would go, I didn't so much go to Paris as leave New York. I grew up in Paris in a way, and then I came back. Behan and Baldwin, or Jimmy as Behan called him, were part of a group of young writers, including Americans who were in Paris with support from the GI Bill, a grant that supported them following their military service in World War II. The ex-GIs were there, and... Those American guys, they were okay, they were very good to me. One of them, whom I knew very slightly, was Norman Mailer, the man who wrote The Naked and the Dead. He bought me ham and eggs in the pergola. Did you know the pergola? It's in the Boulevard Saint-Germain. Well, he bought me ham and eggs in the pergola at a time when I had not eaten some ham and eggs for a long, long time. Brendan Behan spent some of his time in Paris retracing the steps of other Irish writers. He wrote the poem Oscar Wilde in Irish in the Latin Quarter in 1949. So we are standing in front of a, a hotel now. I've returned to the area with Marianne Jelly. As you can see, there's a plaque 
on the facade of the hotel, uh, where you can read the name of Oscar Wilde, a poet and playwright born in Dublin, died in this house on November the 30th, back in 1900. Brendan Bean actually uh, uses the wording of that plaque uh, at the beginning of his poem that he wrote for Oscar Wilde. This place became sort of a shrine for Bean. And he came and he stayed here and he asked to see Oscar Wilde's room. So this hotel meant an awful lot to Brendan Bean. Yeah, so... Exiled now from floor to sanctity's desert, the young prince of sin, broken and withered. Lust left behind him, gem without lustre, no perno for a stiffener, but cold holy water, the young king of beauty, Narcissus, broken. But the pure star of Mary as a gleam on the ocean. Sweet is the way of the sinner, sad death without God's praise. My life on you, Oscar boy, yourself had it both ways. He laments the deserted, wasting body of the poet dying alone in the Latin Quarter. That's John Brannigan. And he celebrates this life as one of joyful, sinning ways. Uh, so he's kind of, you know, celebrating that sort of uh, image of, of sexual and intellectual freedom that he associates with Paris. Yet in many ways, Paris was the perfect place uh, in post-war Europe for Behan to ask the questions which emerged in his early writings uh, about guilt and punishment, about sexuality, and about the relationship between art and politics. Points the magazine that published Behan's work in Paris, shared an office building with one of the most respected French publishers, Les Editions de Minuit. Editions Minuit acquired a whole building and on, up on the second floor, Simbad sublet two rooms there and was there until he stopped doing points. I'm visiting that building in Saint-Germain-de-Prés. Very, very simple decor for such a prestigious company. And it was here that Behan would rub shoulders with another great Irish writer. Samuel Beckett was about to become one of the most important writers of the 20th century. And Les Editions de Minuit had just become his publisher. This is where Brendan Behan is going up the stairs to see his publisher and probably passing Beckett. They became friends. As we go up these stairs, we're really tracing Bean's footsteps and Beckett's. Yes. The building and offices have hardly changed in almost 70 years. It must have pleased Bean to be doing business in the same building as Beckett. By 1951, Bean had some of Borstelboy written while in Paris and was back in Dublin trying to get it published. But he wasn't getting very far, as his friend Anthony Cronin tells in this archive interview. The manuscript itself was presenting a lot of difficulties by then because it had been carried round in his pocket for yes. so long. And it seemed like a work which was physically disintegrating. Not only was it not getting anywhere further, but it was physically disintegrating. And I've no doubt that Brendan felt the rejection very keenly. Unable to make progress in Dublin, Behan turned again to Sinbad Vale. Some months ago, I wrote you that I had started a book. I'm calling it Borstal Boy. 
here is a bit of it. I might see you in the summer if you are still there. In June, he sent him the manuscript. Dublin, June 1951. You must excuse the terrible typing. It was not my fault. I had to do it myself. No typist in Dublin would look at it. Sometime, I will explain to you the feeling of isolation one suffers writing in a corporation housing scheme. Sinbad Vale published the story Bridewell Revisited in winter 1951. In points in 1950 with After the Wake, he experiments with a different kind of narrative of his own experiences and his own feelings. And that's then developed further in a version of Borstal Boy that he publishes in points called Bridewell Revisited, where he ends that story with Behan, the character and narrator, uh, singing a love song to Charlie Millwall. It's a very uh, conscious, homoerotic version of Borstal Boy, and it's the first time that it appears, and it appears in points in 1951. Beautiful, wonderful, awesome boy. Wide was your heart and lightsome your eye. My sorrow without you, forever I'll cry. By 1954, Behan was becoming a well-known writer. His play The Queer Fellow was about to have its world premiere in Dublin that November. In Paris... Sinbad was planning a book of the best short stories from Points, including After the Wake. But when the book was published in 1955, something was different about the story. The ending had changed. It leaves out two significant details. One is the line that the narrator is now slipping down into the bed beside the young man, and also it leaves out some of the details of the wife's corpse with bared teeth, uh, appearing, you know, beside them. I sat on the bed, undressing myself by the faint flickering of the candles from the front room. I fancied her face looking up from the open coffin on the Americans who, having imported wakes from us, invented morticians themselves. The removal of those two, you could regard them as censorship in one sense, but they don't change the meaning substantially. They just take away some of the perhaps more kind of explicit resonances of it. For me, the ending jars with an otherwise well-crafted story, and I think that's a shame. But it does show an awareness by Behan of how his work would be received. I guess he had to worry a little bit more about the circulation of the book. That's John Brannigan again. And his story then becoming available to people who he knew might not uh, regard the story very favourably. So I think points is vitally important. It gives him that sense of confidence. It gives him that sense that he can tell the story differently, that he can tell the story in his own way. I discovered two more items from Brendan Behan's time in Paris, and they're still there. In a legendary bookshop on the left bank of the Seine, called Shakespeare and Company. Opened in the 1950s by George Whitman, it was a place that welcomed writers. It had a little library, and they could even sleep there. When Krista Halverson was writing a book on the history of the shop, 
she came across something of interest. Uh, so here is Behan's library card that I found in, in the archives. Um, there's probably, probably 100, 150 library cards in the archives. We see Behan Brandon Francis. This is in George's handwriting. Uh, was that Hotel de Paris? And we're looking here at the date of 20th of November. Unfortunately, there isn't a year. Um, but I know he was in Paris on the 5th of November, 1952, which makes me think it could have been that, that trip. The book that he took out is End as a Man, and that is a Calder Willingham book, uh, which was published in 1947, so only a few years earlier. It was an interesting choice of book. End as a Man is, is about life inside a military school and... John Baxter again. Uh, the, the overtones of uh, homosexuality and that sort of thing. Uh, it's interesting that he should have chosen that. It's a novel about sexual ambivalence. It's, in a way, maybe it, maybe it fits in with his interests at the time. They also have a rare photograph of Brendan Behan in Paris. This Behan photograph would have been among things he would want to show off to people of, of Behan having been in the bookshop. Yes. There it is. There it is. The Brendan Behan and George Whitman photograph, the original. He's got a, a heavy coat on. He's got the warm scarf. He's standing in the bookshop, leaning back slightly, smiling, looking up at the bookshelves. George, the shop's owner, is seated and looks pleased to have him there. There's something in that to me that suggests the awareness of the photographer, you know, of deliberately not looking at the photographer. You know, every none of them, none of the three figures are looking at one another. I will give you a golden ball to hop with the children in the hall if you'll marry, 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 if you'll marry me. I will give you the keys of my chest and all the money that I possess. In 1959, Brendan Behan returned to Paris as a celebrated writer with his wife Beatrice. They enjoyed the success of his plays The Queer Fellow and The Hostage in the city he had come to love. Speaking in French, he told the audience how proud he was to have his plays presented in the most civilised city in the world. Eleven years later, my father's stage adaptation of Behan's Borstel Boy, directed by Tomás McGanna, set a record for winning the first Tony Award for an Irish play. Sinbad Vale gave Brendan Behan the recognition that he deserved, and he preserved one of his finest short stories. Paris gave Behan the artistic and social freedom to develop as a writer and the confidence to go on to produce some of his best-known works. Paris, the capital of the world, the premier city of the world. It's finished. 